now we're going to go record. Perfect. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm missing the clicker. The remote. The remote. I got it. You guys are going to control that today. Okay. All right. All right. Sounds like a plan. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Chomish Climaxes. Today we are going to study the end of the second Torah portion of the second book. The book, of course, is called Exodus in Hebrew. Chumash Shemot. The second Torah portion is called Va'era. In Hebrew, that literally means he appeared. And it opens with God appearing to Moshe Rabbeinu. And he tells him that it's crucial that he and the people demonstrate the same faith that our patriarchs demonstrated. And when they do, Amazing things are about to unfold. We hear about the process that will lead to the redemption of the Jewish people from the ancient land of Egypt, Mitzrayim. And in this Torah portion, we will actually be going through the first seven plagues. Today's class is going to be about the climax of Parshas Ve'era, which is the removal of the seventh exceptionally devastating and awe and shock punctuated plague. So, and no, with no further ado, let's take a quick look at uh, today's Torah portion. Kind of run through the range or gamut of what unfolds in Parshas Vo'eda. And then we will zero in on the climax, the close, the conclusion of this amazing Torah portion. So Hashem does rebuke Moshe in the outset. He reiterates his promise. And then we hear about some other details. Preparations like the pedigree, the lineage of Moshe and Aaron being traced, and the instructions of how Moshe Rabbeinu is to address the Pharaoh. Moshe and Aaron go to the Pharaoh, and the fun begins. The first plague, the notion of the Nile and all its tributaries turning to blood. And after the water turns into blood, and after the Pharaoh yells, screams, begs, cajoles, Moshe Rabbeinu prays, that plague is lifted. And the second plague is called frogs. These amphibious creatures invade the entirety of the land of Mitzrayim, even crawling into the intestines of the Pharaoh, his courtiers, and the citizenry of the country. The third plague is lice. The entire country is blanketed in layers of lice, and in the fourth plague, a mixed horde of wild and dangerous animals is unleashed, and a redemptive distinction is drawn between Am Yisrael, the children of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, Sora, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, who dwell in the land of Goshen, and the rest of the country called Egypt, Mitzrayim. Which leads us into the fifth plague. Now, the fifth plague is uh, freely translated as an epidemic. 
And what happened is there was a pestilence that struck the Egyptian livestock. The sixth plague was a skin inflammation that erupted into blisters on the skin of the Egyptian citizenry as well as their cattle. Parshas Vaera climaxes with the seventh plague, a rain of hail that miraculously formed together with fire and ice. And this is how the seventh and the final reading of Parshas Vaera unfolds. Moshe Rabbeinu says to the Pharaoh, I have spared you, but you continue to trample upon my people. I always think of that original American revolutionary flag, don't tread on me. I think they took it right out of the ninth chapter of Exodus. At any rate, Moshe Rabbeinu says, I'm going to now make a scratch on the wall where the sun has cast a shadow, and he continues to deliver God's message to the Pharaoh. I will demonstrate my absolute power over the forces of nature by showing you that I can control everything, including the weather, with precise and exact timing. And so, Moshe Rabbeinu draws this line in the wall and he says, when the shadow comes back to this exact place, I will rain down a heavy, heavy hail, never before in Egypt, from the day it was founded, have something like this ever been seen? Moshe Rabbeinu, as Rashi explains, quoting our sages, uses the sun to calculate the precise time in order to demonstrate the accuracy of this prediction because of the inaccuracy of people-made clocks or in case somebody tampers with the mechanisms used to tell time. And it begins. It begins. In the 20th verse, we hear, or in the 19th and 20th, we hear of Moshe Rabbeinu, Shalach Ha'ez Es HaMikna. Now you should gather forth the livestock and everything else you possess in the field. You better bring him into the city because anything remaining out in the field is going to be pelted by this hail of ice mixed with fire. The Pharaoh does not heed the warning of Moses, but many, many of his courtiers who by now fear the word of God, listen carefully to Moshe's warning. And they do bring their livestock indoors to take cover. I'm sharing that with you because this detail will become relevant when we get to the meat of today's class. And it's going to be stormy. The hail begins. It's very heavy. There's lightning that's miraculously flashing in the midst of the hail. I mean, Egypt is North Africa. It's never seen anything like this. Only in Goshen, in the neighborhood of the Israelites, there is no hail, and life is fine. The Pharaoh is absolutely, totally discombobulated from this plague. In fact, our sages tell us that this plague in some ways was far worse than anything Egypt had ever seen before, including all of the prior plagues. In the words of our sages, based on the scriptural expression in which we hear that this, this uh, plague is going to be equal to all plagues, we know 
the, the scripture says, I'm going to send all of my plagues. And the rabbis tell us that this teaches us that that this plague was intense, so powerful that it equaled the impact of all the other plagues combined. The Pharaoh is broken. And so, in verse 9, Chapter 9, in, pardon me, chapter 9, verse 27, the Pharaoh sends word, he summons Moses and Aaron, and he says to them, all right, this time I sinned, God is the righteous one, I and my people, we are wicked, just pray to God. Pray to God, there's been enough of this heaven-sent thunder and hail, and I will send you forth, you need no longer stay in Mitzrayim. Now we hear an emphasis on sound, and we're told that the sonic booms that were experienced by the Egyptians, the Mitzrayim, were extraordinary. So extraordinary that they had something to do with the Pharaoh's capitulation. As the Balaturim says, that we are told that these sounds will never be heard again, that were never heard before, but they would be heard again. These are the same sounds that Am Yisrael the newly formed Israelite nation heard when it stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. The al says that in the end of time, when Mashiach comes, these kind of sonic booms will be heard again. And it was absolutely devastating. It, it, it essentially ripped the Pharaoh to pieces. He was no longer the mighty monarch who had control over his people, economy, and country, but instead the Pharaoh is prepared for full capitulation. So what happens? Well, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Vayomer Elov, in verse 29, and now we're going to start getting into the real study for today. Moshe Rabbeinu says to him, You asked me to pray. Kitzeti et ha'ir. When I leave the city, Ephros et kapai. I will spread out my hands in prayer. El Hashem to God. Hakolot yechdolun. The thunder will cease. Vahabarod. The hail will no longer be. So that you will know that creation belongs to God. Now, as mentioned, we have this emphasis here of Moshe Rabbeinu saying, The Borod will not be again. Avol, the Balaturim says, He never said that the sounds wouldn't return. The sounds did. Balaturim says, They would in fact be heard when the Torah was given. And we know that the Torah's being given was an extraordinary experience that entirely overwhelmed the people to the point that body and soul separated. So these, this noise was absolutely incredible. The difference was at Matan Torah, they actually could see the sound in addition to hearing it. And what that means and why it's relevant is a subject for another day. At any rate, the emphasis here is on the intensity of these sounds and they won't be heard again in Mitzrayim. However, the Medrash does tell us, as I mentioned to you, in the time of Gog Umagog, in a cataclysmic battle that will presage the final redemption through Mashiach, there will be noises that will literally collapse the evil forces that stand arrayed against us. So Moshe says, Kitsei Siyas I need to leave the city in order to pray. 
And the obvious question is, why does Moses suddenly need to leave the city in order to pray? Pharaoh says, Ha'atiru el Hashem. In verse 28, the Pharaoh says, pray to God. I can't take this anymore. Rav mihiyot kolot. Elikim, I can't take, there's been enough of this heaven sent thunder. I can't take it anymore. I can't take the hail. I'll send you forth. Just pray. Moses says, not so fast. I want to demonstrate to you that I, we have the full mastery. I'm just representing God, and God is the master of the universe. And when I pray, it's going to stop. But for some reason, it can't be in the front of the Pharaoh, which would probably be much more impressive. Instead, Moses has to leave the city. Why? Well, Rashi tells us, Bitsaiti et ha'ir really has to be understood as min ha'ir. He needs to leave the city. But in the city, lohit palel. Moses could not pray. Why? Because the city was full of idol worship. Now, the obvious question is if the city is full with idol worship and Moses can't pray in it, why are we hearing about this now for the first time? Rashi doesn't really address that question. He simply says that's why Moshe Rabbeinu feels a need to leave. So interestingly, I wanted to share with you that the Baalei Hatosfot, whose teachings are recorded on Chumash in the Dat Zekenim of the Baalei Hatosfot, the Baalei Hatosfot comment and they say, the reason that Moshe Rabbeinu said, I must leave the city, this is the reason Moshe Rabbeinu had to leave the city, because, more so, when he prayed for the hail to stop them by the other makot, the fee, because, sha'al makat habarot ksiv hayore. Remember, I told you in verse 20, it says, those who will take me seriously, Moshe says, those who will fear Hashem, will bring their livestock into the city, rather than leave them in the fields. And so, at that moment, the city became full of gilulim, of idolatry. And the reason is, ancient Egypt used to worship animals. We have copious documentation in secular sources of them worshiping cats. Torah talks to us about them worshiping sheep. And we know in general that they believed that animals had an otherworldly power. Many, many of their icons use heads or forms of different animals. And this is what they worshipped. There are some faith systems that till this very day focus on a holiness or a sanctity attached to animals. And because they worshipped these animals, Moshe Rabbeinu said, now I have to leave the city. The Daz finishes off very interestingly by saying, Amnam, Tzorach Loima, really and truly, we have to say, Shagam l'sha'art filot hayayot that if Moshe Rabbeinu was being disturbed by the presence of idolatry, that probably jammed his prayers not only in this situation, but in general. It is from this particular instance that we can derive the same would be true for the others. Now, why does the Dazakinim have to say this? I'm not sure, but I think it was widely known, and today it is, copiously documented that there were many statues they worshipped as well. There are all kinds of temples that have been excavated in ancient Egypt, and there are many, many, many statues which it seems were worshipped. So if it was a concern of idolatry or the presence of other de deities, 
Why would it only have bothered Moshe if there's livestock? Why wouldn't the deities of gold and silver, stone or wood, have gotten in the way as well? Well, the Baal Zakenim says it did. And in fact, Moshe did not pray in the city. He would leave the city. The question, though, is why did the Torah choose to tell us about Moshe Rabbeinu praying here? Ah, the answer, says the Baleatosis, is because now the notion of idolatry was raised to the next level with all of the livestock actually being in the city. Now, oh, it's interesting that Nachmanides, Ranban, in his commentary, has a similar approach. Let me share with you. He says, Kitseiti etair alderech apshat. If we are to learn or study this verse in its literal iteration, it makes sense to say that Moses had a place he prayed. It just makes sense to say that. So of course he went. Well, then why is it that we hear about this now? So Nachmanides says, He wanted to raise his hands heavenward in prayer. And all of the thunder would cease. Vahamater, the rain, the precipitation would stop. He couldn't do it in the city. And that's why he said, I'm going to leave the city. Now, Ramban himself does not really explain more details. The truth is that the Medrash is very explicit about this. And the Medrash says, Moshe Rabbeinu did not pray in the civilized or settled areas of Egypt because they were, well, filled with idols. And even in our modern day and age, we are not permitted to play in places of filth. We're also not permitted to pray in a place where there's idolatry. You know, sometimes in the uh, airport, remember those days when people used to travel? <laughs> you have like a prayer area. Or maybe sometimes you have in other way stations a prayer area. So it's a great place to pray. But if there's actual iconography representing other deities, that's a problem. We actually can't pray there. We're only allowed to pray to Hashem. And whilst our prayers should be focused, and therefore we're not permitted to, to pray in a wide open area, nonetheless, if the area designated for prayer has particular icons in it, that's a problem for us. So Moshe Rabbeinu would have had this problem, and as such, he couldn't pray in the actual city. Now, we'll soon talk about what city this is. So he had to go out of the city. Ramban, however, says, Rabotenu Amru, and here he quotes the Medesh the Psikta Zutrasa, which specifically talk about, the Psikta talks about a bayit, chutzaleir, a house of prayer. Moses had a synagogue. The Psikta Zutrasa, specifically alludes to a Moses synagogue. The Balayateisvus are referencing it too. And here Rambam, Ramban doesn't ref- reference a house. He just says it is self-understood that he would not pray in the city itself. And the reason it's talked about here is because here the Pharaoh said, pray now. Never before had the Pharaoh said to Moses, pray now. Because he said to him, pray now, well, Moses has no choice. So he says, okay. I, I can pray, but not right now. I need to leave the city. I can pray in the midst of idolatry. And that's why Hutzrach Moshe Lefarash, that's why Moshe had to explicitly spell it out and tell the Pharaoh that he couldn't pray here. And only after he leaves the city, Yefros Kapa Hashem, could he raise his hands before God, the Yasser Bitfilosai, and then he would be able to express himself in prayer. 
So Ramban corroborates this notion that it had to be prayers that were performed outside of the city itself, not only with regard to this particular plague, but really, broadly speaking, with all of the prayers of Moses, it took place outside. And as mentioned, the Pesikta identifies a particular house of prayer. Where was this area, this house of prayer? Well, if we take a look in the Targum Yonatan ben Uziel, which is much more than a translation. Yonatan ben Uziel, the eldest disciple of Hillel, a person who studied Torah with so much fervor that birds would get barbecued if they flew over him when they studied Torah. The Yonatan ben Uziel actually elucidates and he clarifies and comments on the Chumash in his translation. So in the 33rd verse, where we hear about Moshe Rabbeinu leaving, it says, Unifak Moshe Milavaspare, Smich Lekarta. Moshe Rabbeinu left the presence of the Pharaoh, but this was close to the city. And then, Ufras Yodoi Bitsiloi. Then he raised his hand in prayer before Hashem. And the the, the, the notion of where Moshe Rabbeinu went, Smich Lekarta, in the commentary on the it says that the Medrash says Moshe, Moshe went out of the city, but he was still within the scrimmage of the city. A halachic scrimmage is a very small amount of space, 2,000 cubits. Not a, lot of, not a lot of space. He didn't go very far. He left the city, but he was still within the city limits, per se. And He did not engage in a lengthy or arduous prayer, but simply raised his hands in prayer and immediately, Kibbalah Kaddish Baruch Hu, Almighty God, accepted those prayers. Just to um, kind of augment this notion of Moshe Rabbeinu praying in this particular set of circumstances outside of the city, but really it referring to all of the other prayers, I found a fascinating commentary that's from Rabbeinu Moshe Galanti. Rabbeinu Moshe Galanti is, I believe, of Spanish extraction, Spanish Jewish extraction. One of those uh, great families of Torah scholars who fled Spain at the time of the Inquisition. Rabbeinu Moshe was born in Tzfat, but he really becomes famous in the city of Yerushalayim. In fact, when Rabbeinu Moshe came to Yerushalayim, we're talking now about the late 16th century, 17th century, the very, very august population of Yerushalayim, which included uh, a wide array of amazing Torah scholars, were in awe of his learning and his Torah intuition. So much so that they sought to make him chief rabbi of Jerusalem, and he refused the position. He didn't want the honor. So finally, they crafted a new position, calling him Rishon LeZion. Zion means the sparked, pardon me, the marked spot. And that typically refers to the site of the Beit HaMikdash, sometimes in a more broad sense, referring to the city of Yerushalayim. Nothing really to do with the notion of modern-day Jewish nationalism, but that's the origin of the word Zion. And they called him Rishon Zion because, as if to say, you know, like in the United States, they call him the first lady or the first family. So he was like the first of Zion, as if to indicate his learning being superior to everybody else in the city of Yerushalayim. Very interestingly, that title has kind of been retained by the Sephardic community living in Yerushalayim. And in 1948, when they established a chief rabbinate of Israel, the Sephardic chief rabbi was dubbed Rishon Letzion, a title that the present Sephardic chief rabbi of Israel maintains until today. Anyway, so a little bit of history, as they say. Ramosha Galanti wrote a book of commentary on the Chumash, amongst various other 
important works that he wrote, like the Elif Lamogin. But in, in this, this book is called Zevach HaShlomim. And in his Zevach HaShlomim, Ramosha asks the question, he brings down various commentaries as to why the notion of Moshe Rabbeinu leaving the city is mentioned specifically with this plague. And he says something's missing. There needs to be a better reason for the Torah choosing to convey this important message. In fact, halacha, a binding etiquette of prayer on Torah Jews. There needs to be a better reason for it being conveyed to us specifically with this plague. And Ramosha says something fascinating. He says, when it comes to the other makot, whenever there's a mention of prayer, there is, uh, let's just say it, weighty verbs, heavy adjectives that are used. For example, when it came to the mixed horde, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Vahatarti el Hashem, I will pour forth in prayer, pleading to God. And then it says, Vayetze Moshe, he went out, Vayetar, he, he, he prayed with great intensity. And afterwards, the Torah says, Vayas Hashem Kidvar Moshe. The Torah says, God did as per the word of Moshe. So prayer represents verbiage, articulation. He prayed intensely, verbalizing those prayers. God responded. When it comes to the amphibious monsters who came out of the Nile River, or the frog, it says, Vayitzak Moshe. Moshe cried out. And Rashi talks about that, what the meaning of cried out is. And then there too it says, Hashem did kidvar Moshe. Crying out certainly involves articulation. There was something said, Moshe Rabbeinu poured forth in prayer. You know, you would tend to think of prayer in today's day and age. We verbalize our prayers. You read from the Siddur. The Chazan sings or chants those prayers out loud with great passion, fervor, and melody. When it comes to the Borat, however, despite the fact that this was such an intense plague, as I mentioned a little while ago, nonetheless, Moshe Rabbeinu never says he's going to say anything. He never indicates he's going to pray in a typical fashion. What he does say is, Prisas Kapayim, I'm going to spread my hands forth. That's all he says. He says, I'm going to raise my hands in prayer. When we hear of God accepting those prayers, we don't hear the notion of Vayas Hashem Kedvar Moshe, as is stated previously in the scripture, God did as per the request or word of Moshe. Instead, it simply says, Moshe Rabbeinu raised his hands in prayer. This is in verse 33. I shared it with you a moment ago. Vayifros Kapavel Hashem. And immediately afterwards, it just says, Vayach Delu HaKolot. The sounds ceased, just like that. Haborod vahamotor, the rain, the hail, loini didn't reach the ground. And we'll get to that in a moment. So there's this notion of raising his hands. And that's all. Moshe raises his hands. Says Rabbeinu Moshe in Zevach HaShlomim, this is lahorot here we wish to emphasize the great power wielded by Moshe Rabbeinu. The power that Hashem placed in his hands, pun intended. The other plagues, the other makot were not nearly as intense. And yet, there Moshe Rabbeinu had to pray. And here, all he had to do was raise his hands. That's all. That was, that was clear. 
That's how he wielded his power. <laughs> Many years ago, I was once on, on um, somebody's private plane, a very interesting fellow, very, uh, very wealthy fellow, very softly spoken, but very, very stern, very, very disciplined. And I was with my son, and he started talking to the pilot, and <laughs> he didn't say a word. He simply went, <laughs> he raised his hand as if to say, no, no, we're not doing any of that now. He later explained, I paid those pilots a lot of money to fly the plane. I want them to focus on flying the plane. I don't want them talking to the kids. It was just very funny the way he just raised his hand. And I was like, this is a serious magnate. This is a guy who knows how to get his way, and he doesn't have to say a word about it. Moshe Rabbeinu just raised his hands. That's all. And God immediately responds to Moshe. It's interesting to point out that there is one other occasion where we hear of Moshe Rabbeinu's hands outstretched in prayer, and that's when the people of Amalek attacked the Jewish nation, exploiting the stragglers and the weakened people. And the, the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud tells us that they selected people whose birthday was that day because their mazel, then their fortune is very strong, and that's a subject for another day. It's, uh, I, I, I talk about this at length in the series on Jewish birthdays. I encourage you uh, to watch and get educated. I think it's in the second class where I talk about this. But at any rate, we also learned about it in a Gemara class about um, 10 classes back in this new series on the ninth chapter of Mesechet Brachot. When Moshe Rabbeinu raised his hands, it seems he was able to impede the heavenly workings, the power of Moshe, including to impede the influence of a mazel, or a spiritual force attached to a particular time. So this is a, a power that Moshe Rabbeinu has, which we find him using twice. And although King David speaks about Ephros Kapai raising his hands in prayer, we really don't find in Jewish tradition an emphasis on raising one's hands in prayer. The Kohanim raise their hands when they bless us, but that is actually another story. It's not the concept of prayer, it's the opposite direction. Prayer is us reaching out to Hashem, whereas the notion of blessing is the Kohanim actualizing. And the reason that they make their hands in that particular shape is as if to make the cracks through which the light peers. There's a class on that. It's online. It's on the Chabad.org. It's about the notion of Birchat Kohanim. But that's not the point of today's class. So Moshe Rabbeinu raises his hands, and in raising his hands, what he does is, stop this insane storm of the century. It just stops. And here, says Rabbeinu Moshe, is the point. If the Torah wants to convey to us this message that you can't pray in the presence of a religious iconography or idols, where would the Torah convey it? The answer would be in the area that is most novel. So whilst... I might think, well, to raise one's voice in prayer wouldn't be appropriate, but how about just raising hands? I, I didn't actually pray. I didn't actually say anything. We just raised our hands in prayer. So says Rabbeinu Moshe, the Torah teaches us, even when Moshe did nothing but raise his hands, he was told, not in the city. You can't do it when you're in the presence of this kind of deity or idolatry and as such, we can understand that certainly it goes without saying when it came to the actual prayer sessions, it wasn't something that was done in the city. It was something that happened 
outside of the city. And as we mentioned, the Sikta is pretty clear in talking about a house, a place where Moshe Rabbeinu davened. So interestingly enough, there is a discussion about such a place. Some 400 years ago, in the late 16th into the 17th century, there was a very famous rabbi who lived in Egypt, an Egyptian boy rabbi. His name was Rabbi Yosef Sambari. And he was one of the most prominent Egyptian rabbis of his century. He wrote a very interesting book in which he collected all of the Torah teachings about midrashic miracles and uh, the unusual, the unnatural things that are talked about in Torah. And unusual, just like things which aren't, aren't typical. From the time of Rabbonon Savaroi, which goes back to the close of the Talmud. So we're talking about from about what happened 1,600 years ago until his time about 400 years ago. So he covers about 1,000 years of tradition. And we know that there were Jewish people living in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, continuously during that entire period. And in, he, he has this book called Divri Yosef. The book is actually quoted by the Seder Hadorot. It's quoted by the Chidot, very, very prominent, both Sephardic and Ashkenazic sources. And he says something amazing there. He says, several hundred years before his time, so we'd have to be talking now maybe the 10th century or 11th century. Several hundred years before his time, outside of the city called Tzoan Mitzrayim. Now Tzoan Mitzrayim is identified in the Torah in a number of places, including the Torah's comparison of the city of Hebron to the city of royalty in Egypt called the city of Tzoan. Now very interestingly, we believe that the city of Tzoan is the city which is called Tanis, or ancient Tanis. And we believe that Torah refers to it as Tzoan. I believe today the archaeological site, or maybe even the area where some people still live, is called Sa'an el-Hagar, which may have something to do with Abraham's concubine wife, I don't know. At any rate, what is interesting is that in the 19th dynasty of Egypt, it was the capital of Lower Egypt. And there are temple inscriptions that go back to the reign of Ramses II that talk about, quote, the fields of Tzoan. It's exactly how it's described in the Torah, Sdei Tzoan, which is fascinating because if we take the Divri Yosef's word seriously, we could know that it was in all likelihood, in the 19th dynasty, and most likely Ramses II, who was the pharaoh in the Torah. And we actually believe that he probably was the Ramses. We, we, see, we know that things were brought from a previous capital, which is called Phi-Ramses, or Pi-Ramses. Pi-Ramses lines up almost precisely or exactly with the Torah's description of cities that were being rebuilt Sounds like cities, storage cities, where things were moved from P. Ramses into the city of Tanis. And that's exactly where we hear the Jewish people building in cities where they're collapsing. And we know that these cities actually underwent a change in typography. There was a, a, a major areas of the Nile Delta that became silted up and were no longer appropriate for living or storage, weakening ground 
And what happens is that's where the Jewish people's torture and that's where the slave labor is focused. I find it pretty incredible. It's exactly when the time should be. Ramses II, the 19th dynasty of Egypt, which ultimately winds to a close and collapses, making perfect sense with the biblical narrative. And, and uh, they move it to Tanis. So Tanis then, or Tsoan, would be the capital of the pharaoh. That's pretty cool because Divri Yosef says that outside of the city of Tsoan, or Tanis, there's a little shoal. And in this little shul, he says, people come to pray there and they call this tiny house of worship Beta Knesset Shal Moshe Rabbeinu. I kid you not. It's exactly what the Pesikta says. Moses had a little house in which he prayed. It seems that the Muslims used to revere this site as well and they called it Knisat Musa, the prayer location of Moses. And it is believed that when Moses said, I'll leave the city, this is the site he was talking about. Now, the Divri also says that when he would pray there, he would take this miraculous staff and he would kind of drive it into the ground. And he would pray without holding the staff, which is in consonance with the notion of halacha, that you don't hold valuable things when you're praying. So Moshe Ben didn't want to lay the staff down. It had names of Hashem engraved on it. He would drive it into the ground. And it is said that this created a dent or a ditch and a large tree grew on that site. Which is pretty phenomenal because apparently that tree was still around a few hundred years before the times of the Divri Yosef. So in the 10th century, there was a tree that had grown out of this area that Moshe Rabbeinu used to place his staff in. Egyptian Jewry used to make a pilgrimage there every year on Shavuot. And we know on Shavuot we focus on Moshe Rabbeinu. And we talk about the idea of Moshe Rabbeinu being the one through whom the Torah was given. We barely mention Moshe Rabbeinu's name on the night of Pesach. Pesach is about God taking us out of Mitzrayim, but God's Torah comes to us through Moshe Rabbeinu. And the emphasis on Moshe Rabbeinu or Ben Amram is very much a Shavuot phenomenon. So this is really quite fascinating. In the book of Seder Hadorot, which is a 18th century Lithuanian work, there is also mention of this, of this synagogue from the manuscripts of Benjamin of Tadello, Masaot Benjamin in the journeys of, of a um, 16th century or 15th century rabbi, Benjamin of Tudelo, who traveled all across the Middle East and documents all kinds of amazing things, some easy to believe and some not. At any rate, there's this notion of the city of Tanis being a capital, Moshe Rabbeinu having to leave that city, not going very far, just going right outside the city, raises his hand in prayer, and then the storm of the century stops. Just like that. He raised his hands and everything froze. Now, one second. We're in the middle of a very, very heavy rain and hailstorm. What does that mean, everything froze? That's what the Torah says. That's pretty much how the Torah concludes Parshas Va'era. It tells us that everything froze. The Torah uses the words is Vayachdalu. They just ceased, stopped. Verse 34 says, Vayar Parai. The Pharaoh saw. He chodal hamotar. Once again, we use the word chodal, which means to freeze, stop in its tracks.
Everything just stopped. The rain stopped. The borod, the ice, the hail stopped. The kolot, these debilitating sonic booms of thunder stopped. And at that moment, the pharaoh immediately recanted. By Yosef Lachtoi, the pharaoh now continues to sin. And at this point, the pharaoh has his heart, like that of his courtiers, hardened and he remains unmoved. And the Torah finishes off with the note of Pharaoh's obstinate heart. The Pharaoh was obstinate. And he doesn't send forth the Israelites. But then again, that is precisely what was predicted. Exactly as God had spoken through the ages of Moshe. So, no surprises here, exactly as expected. In today's climatic class, focusing on the climax conclusion of Parshas Vaira, I would like to devote the rest of the time we have together to the business of what went down when Moses stopped the storm. What exactly does that mean? Now, when we hear about the other plagues seizing, it isn't instantaneous. There seems to be almost a recovery process. Nowhere before did the Torah use the word vayechtelu or vayechtal. In fact, the Balaturim fascinatingly points out that the Torah uses the word vayechtal but once. Think early on. In the post-Great Flood generation, we had people who sought to build themselves a, a name, fame and renown. They didn't want to look heavenward. They wanted to fight with God. They're called the generation of the great dispersion. Dora HaFlaga. So the Balaturim says, you know, that the words Vayechtalu, that word shows up only once more in the Bible. One other time. And that's found in Genesis 11. Right in the beginning, in verse 8, it says, Vayechtalu they were building this great megacity to unite all of humanity against God. And they suddenly stopped. Everything suddenly froze. How'd that happen? So the Balaturim says, the fact that the Torah uses the word absolute freezing cessation here and there Melame teaches us that besides the Midrashic idea of God changing their languages and confusing communication and the ensuing breakdown of communication leads to all kinds of vitriolic arguments and eventually a disbanding of their unity, the Balaturim says that first, there was a major boom. And the sound froze everything in its tracks. God sent forth thunderous sounds. The Irvavam, and this disoriented them. Until they could no longer continue building. And Pauturim says something so sweet. He says, guess what? The Jewish people were kind of still in conscription of work details. 
they weren't actually working, but they were kind of still in some kind of formation of work details. And you know where the work really stopped? Right here. The same sounds. So we see that it wasn't just the fire, the ice, but it was actually the thunder. The thunderous sounds is what freezes work in early antiquity from the sin of those who wish to unite and rebel against God. And it is these sounds that grinds the Egyptian activities of enslaving the Jewish people to a halt once again because of the incredible sounds that were issuing forth. But let's talk about this notion. Let's talk about this idea of everything freezing. How did, how did the storm just stop? Rashi is troubled with this very detail. He says, the Torah says, the thunder ceased, and the ice and the rain, it says, did not reach earth. Did you notice the verbiage? You, you, you see the precise language? The thunder ceased. The precipitation didn't reach earth. Way to go. There's a bit of a distance between earth and the heavens. The firmament. There's an atmosphere. Many clouds. A storm. Egypt never saw anything like this. Where did the precipitation go? It didn't reach earth. How did it suddenly disappear? All we know is it didn't reach earth. So Rashi fascinatingly says, Lo nitach, not such a common word. The meaning of lo nitach is lo higia. It didn't reach. It didn't arrive. What happens to those droplets that were on the way down? This was not a drizzle. This was a deluge, a downpour. There wasn't only ice. There was ice and a heck of a lot of water raining down on Egypt. Says Rashi that this intense storm, this heavy downpour, all of that precipitation, all that rain that was already in the atmosphere, never reached the ground. Never reached the ground. Where do we see verbiage like that? That lonitach means it didn't reach. So Rashi says, Vidomalo. Here's something which is comparable from a perspective of verbiage. We hear about in, in the book of this is the prophecies, I believe, of Yechesko. I'm not 100% sure. Hmm. Give me a second. No, book of Daniel. Okay. As, as Rashi says. So the verse in the book of Daniel says like this. 
It's called the book of Ezra and Daniel, but it's the, it's the book of Daniel. It says, Vatitach aleinu ha'olo v'hashvua. Vatagia aleinu. It means the curse and the oath in the book of Daniel means it reached us. So here it says, Lonitach, which means it didn't reach us. In the book of Daniel it says, it did reach us. Now it's domelo, it's, it's euphemistically comparable because we're not talking about the exact same thing. Here we're talking about actual physical precipitation. Raindrops, a lot of them, that didn't reach earth. There we're talking about an oath. We're talking about a curse. It's not a physical, tangible thing. But the same terminology is used. So therefore Rashi says, just like there it means it reached, Loni Tachir means it didn't reach. And it's a figure of speech in the book of Daniel, and here it's quite literal. Rashi doesn't stop there. And he says, Umenachem ben Sirok, Chibro, the famous biblical, I would say, grammatician and interpreter, he classifies it as Bechelek ki tuach kesef, in the category of a verse found in the book of Ezekiel, which that verse speaks about hituach kesef, the pouring of silver or of metal. Now, if you pour silver, what did you have to do? You had to have melted the silver through intense heat. He says, this is l'shoin yitzikas matechas. This means the pouring or the melting into a liquid form of metal. That's got to be really hot. Unculus renders it, vayitzok, and he poured. Unculus renders it, vaatich. So therefore, therefore, here we say, when we say lonitach, there is a direct connection between the notion of pouring, and it means then the rain didn't pour onto earth. Not it didn't reach, it didn't pour. Rashi says, ro'ani es dvarav. I think Menachem ben Sarak's right. I think that the language lonitach doesn't mean it didn't reach. I think it means the rains didn't pour down. And just like over there, the notion of lotzeket or latocha is to pour or to cast. Avze lonitach aretz here too. The hail didn't pour. The rain didn't pour. Lehutzak l'aretz didn't pour to the ground. <laughs> okay. So what's the difference between these two interpretations? What's the difference if lonitach means it didn't reach or if lonitach means that it didn't, it didn't pour to the earth? Either way, the rain didn't reach the earth. And vayechdal means everything ground to a halt. The sounds just stopped and the rain didn't reach earth. So the Rebbe, in a very uh, detailed, sophisticated, edited rumination, which is found in the sixth volume of Lekut HaSichas, and I'm just going to quote um, the basic gist of that Sicha. I'm not going to go into the whole Sicha. It's a fascinating, fascinating Sicha with um, many, many, many layers. But at any rate, a gist or an overriding encapsulation of that sicha, the Rebbe says that the difference between 
the first interpretation of Rashi and the second interpretation of Rashi is not merely grammatical, but rather it has something to do with what happened. We have to answer the big question. Where did the precipitation go? What happened to it? The Torah says Moshe Rabbeinu prayed by raising his hands. His prayer was accepted instantaneously. He raises his hands, the thunder sees, and the precipitation stops. What happened to the drops? Millions of drops, where'd they go? Well, if we say it didn't reach earth, the first interpretation of Rashi, Lohigia, where'd the rain go? The answer is it stayed somewhere in the atmosphere. It just froze. The rain remained in the atmosphere exactly where it was and it didn't reach earth. Because lonitach, according to the first interpretation, means it didn't reach. It doesn't say it disappeared. Not reaching and disappearing are two very different phenomenons. According to the second interpretation, the rain no longer poured, which means it was no longer in a liquid form, like metal that would harden. And it's no longer in a state of being pourable. Is that a word? <laughs> you know what I mean. It's no longer flowing. It's become frozen. And the Rebbe suggests that that would mean that the rain actually disappeared. In modern English, we would call that evaporation or vaporization. That's the big question. Did Moses freeze the rain in its spot so it didn't reach earth? Or did he do away with the rain altogether? Now there is a medrash that talks about the rain being frozen and the hail being saved for a later time. There's this medrash that talks about the hail miraculously moving across the skies and being useful in Joshua's battle against the Canaanite kings. But as the Rebbe points out, it's a medrash. It doesn't exactly fit with the Pshuto Shalmikr. There is no indication in the straightforward, simple reading of the verses that tells us anything like that. But the verse does indicate that the rain simply dissipated. It was gone. Just like that. Rashi favors the second approach. Why do we need two interpretations? Why can't Rashi just introduce one, especially if he favors one? If Rashi likes the idea of the vein evaporating, why doesn't he just say that? Why do we need two schools of thought? One being the rain froze in midair and maybe rained at a later time or at some point reached the ground in a slower, less intense way, during a rainstorm of the future, or the rain evaporating. So why don't you just stick with the sound seized, the rain evaporated. Rain evaporated. So the Rebbe says, we have a Torah principle. It's a working principle. It's the way we analyze stories in the Torah. And the working principle is, 
God doesn't make miracles just for the sake of miracles. As Rabbeinu Nisan, the Ran, explains in his drashas, Hashem created nature and cherishes nature. You know, like metaphorically, something you put a lot of work into. You don't like to cast those plans aside. You worked on something, you planned things out very carefully, and somebody comes along and says, you know what, forget about those plans, let's just let's do something else. Say, I beg your pardon? I put all my work into these plans. I want to do it the way I planned it. Or you built something tediously, painstakingly, and you value it. And somebody comes along and says, eh, let's just forget about it. Let's just destroy it and move on. Don't you remember maybe as a child working so hard at building a snowman and like some bully or older sibling coming and knocking the snowman down and how angry you were about that? Obviously, it's all a metaphor. We cannot take any of this discussion in a literal fashion. It's anthropomorphical on steroids when we speak about Hashem. But there's this notion that Hashem cherishes nature. That's how the great Rishon, Benonison, explains it. And the operating principle is that God doesn't simply cast nature aside. There's got to be a very good reason to change the plan. Well, here would be a, a good reason to change the plan. The plan was that the rain was going to hit the surface of earth. But Moses was just challenged to demonstrate mastery over the weather. He has to show the Pharaoh that when he prays, God listens. In fact, all he has to do is raise his hands. And God listens. Where's the rain go? Well, it freezes. So because of this working principle, the notion of rain freezing or rain evaporating, I'm not talking about a drizzle, the question is, which is the greater miracle? Which would require a greater, if you will, shattering of the order of nature? So on the surface, it seems that rain freezing in midair would be a far greater miracle because the water has to now remain in place. That's not the nature of water. Frozen in place. The forces of gravity or any which way you want to call it would cause those things to come crashing down. The second miracle... A sudden evaporation seems to be a one-time thing. And yet, Rashi favors not the first, but the second. Because the second miracle is a far lesser breaking or shattering of the orbit or order of nature. However, there is room for another approach. Because the Rebbe introduces us to another Torah principle. This is found in the Gemara in Masechet Tanit on page 25. I don't want to go into the details. It's about a sage who didn't have his needs met. And a miracle happens. And then he discovers that that miracle sustenance comes with a very hefty price tag. And he's not happy. And the Talmud tells us that Gemiri, we have learned in halachic fashion, it's kind of like halachic conclusion, that Mishmaya Mehev Yohiv 
from heaven they'll give, but mishka leshakli. You may get heaven to give, but then you don't take it back. Heaven don't take back what it gives. If the gift is given, it's given. As they say, once the horse has left the barn, you can't put him back in. So once it's been given, it's done. And the way the Rebbe explains it, when something is given from heaven, when it becomes actualized in a terrestrial, actual, literal sense, it doesn't just get vaporized. That's not the way it works. Once something becomes incarnated in a physical form, in that form, it shall remain. From that perspective, the notion that God would vaporize or evaporate the rain after it already became rain is a much bigger novelty. So we have competing principles. One principle that says, let's look for the smallest miracle, evaporation. It doesn't require a continuous miracle of rain floating in the heavens. And the other? The other represents the notion that if God gave it, he's not taking it back. You can delay it, you can freeze it, but if he gave it, what's given has already, so to speak, left the barn and there it shall remain. And so the Rebbe shows us basically how what seems to be a grammatical Rashi is actually a very, very profound commentary on the greatest storm of history, forget century, and the way it was stopped. And what lesson can we learn from this? What difference does it make to us how this miraculous storm of fire and hail, incredible precipitation, huge volumes of water and thunder and lightning like no one's ever seen or heard before, what's the point? Who cares if it was evaporated or remained frozen in place until a later time? What was the Pharaoh doing? What was the Pharaoh saying? What kind of behavior was the Pharaoh exhibiting when he calls Moshe? Let's go back to the scripture. The Pharaoh said to Moshe, Chatasi hapo'am. I have sinned this time. This time I have sinned. I acknowledge I did the wrong thing. Hashem HaTzadik. God is righteous. My people and I are the wicked ones. What does that sound like? That sounds like tshuva. That sounds like the notion of contriteness. You did something wrong, take responsibility. Even the Pharaoh did. Not for long, mind you. He recanted very quickly. But for a moment... He did what we refer to in our Torah tradition as tshuva. The Pharaoh did tshuva. He repented, as it's called in English. He returned to a path of decency, of morality, of righteousness. The Pharaoh said, I am wicked. We are wrong. God is right. Imagine that. How powerful is tshuva? How efficacious is tshuva? That's the question. The Rebbe says that after all, the consequences of sin 
are what actually create the proverbial punishment. The, the sinful behavior engenders the consequence. The prophet says, your own evil will chastise you. As they say sometimes, you know, the monster you create, you can no longer control. You did bad things. You unleash a monster. You may regret this later on. Right now it was used as blunt force against your enemy, but once you created it, now you're stuck with it. And it can easily turn on its master. So evil behavior brings evil in its toe. Or actually is distilled into a consequence. And the consequences of our own evil actions can be the most painful of punishments we'll ever experience. What does tshuva do? Tshuva, return as we term it, is the notion of being able to make amends for the past. In fact, we believe that tshuva can change the past. Tshuva is not only about ensuring that there isn't punishment for the future. Tshuva, in fact, is about undoing what happened. That's how marvelous tshuva is. It might not work with people. People have a hard time forgiving. And it's almost impossible for them to really forget, unless they're truly righteous individuals. But Hashem, in His endless benevolence, compassion, kindness, and mercy to us, not only won't hold what we did against us, but in fact, he'll vaporize the negativity itself. The Rebbe suggests that this is precisely the crux of the matter. How efficacious could the Pharaoh's tshuva have been? Could it have undone, vaporized, evaporated the consequence, which is the barad? Or could it merely have stopped it in its tracks? For the Pharaoh, it was a question. For us, it's a given. We can not only change the way things will go on the future, we can not only shield ourselves from the negative consequences engendered by our actions, but for us, Tshuva can always change the past. In fact, Tshuva may ahava, returning to Hashem, not only out of awe and respect, but with a great love and fervor, can ultimately serve to transform reality to the point that demerits become merits. Zadonot naasim kizachiot. And so the upshot of today's climatic class. The story of how the greatest storm in history ended. Do tshuva. We can all do better. We need to be mature enough to acknowledge our shortcomings. We need to be responsible enough to say, I made a mistake. I did the wrong thing. And when you do tshuva, not only will the future be friendly, but in fact, you can re-engineer the past as well. I've made mistakes. You've made mistakes. Let's do tshuva. 
Let's return to Hashem. And you know, my friends, as we continue to grapple with this pandemic, it's interesting to note that our sages tell us that tshuva brings refuah. Returning to Hashem brings a wind or spirit of healing. Our world needs healing more than ever before. I heard so many people say things like, it's COVID now. What does God expect from me? I'm too frustrated. I can't deal with stuff. Big mistake. We can. We should. And in fact, we must. Let's make tomorrow better than today. And we do that by regretting yesterday. And if we will truly regret the things we did wrong, and real tshuva means to abandon the path of folly and necessarily to resolve that tomorrow will be different. So that Abishta Helfen, may Almighty God bless us with a reality in which not only will the raindrops not hit us in the face, but in fact, whatever negativity we may have caused to be evaporated, removed entirely, and Be'ezrat Hashem, soon the clouds will blow away and the sun will shine again. But this time, not only the balmy weather of life as we knew it, but hopefully, when this storm scatters, we will together experience a world made whole and healed, a world filled with nothing but goodness, good health, good spirits, prosperity, and that world of goodness will be brought about because it will be a world filled with godliness. The presence of Hashem palpably seen, felt in every iota of our existence. May we merit that, that great day. Speedily. And in our time, Amen. Thank you so much for joining today. If you aren't yet subscribed, please take a moment to subscribe and don't forget to enable notifications. God bless you all. May we hear and share good news. Hopefully, the best news of all, Mashiach has finally arrived. Kultuf.